Thank you, Michelle. Welcome, folks. Great to have you along. If you're new or visiting today, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really special to have you here. Um, our Christian, sorry, our, so we've got CY Christian Youth and Youth Church, CY and YC. I always get mixed up. YC, five to eight, your chance to head out with Darcy and someone else. I don't know. The rest of us, we're going to hang out in, um, in that chapter of Corinthians. Please have your Bibles open if you've got one there. If you don't have one there, slip up the back and grab one. If you don't own a Bible, you do now. Go and scribble your name in one of the ones that you grab from the back because we would like you to have God's Word available to you at all times as well. Now, I'm going to just get organised here a little bit and then we'll start as we usually do and we'll pray and ask God to help us as we, uh, as we dig into His Word. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do. We thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that you're not hidden your glory from us, but you have made it plainly perceivable in Jesus. And we ask now that you would not allow even one person to leave here today untransformed, that all of us would come to a deeper knowledge and appreciation and a great thanks for your glory on display in Christ Jesus, especially if it's for the first time that we realise it. And for Jesus' sake, we get to pray that. Amen. Right, I'm going to do something a little bit different today, and I'm going to dive straight into the text. No fancy setups or illustrations or long stories. Where's he going with this one? What's he going to... None of that. I'm diving straight in. Because in and of itself, that is an illustration you'll see later in the passage before us. But because, as often is the case, there's far more gold to mine here than time permits me. And brevity is not my strong suit. So... What I want to do is I want to quickly pick up a little bit of a recap on chapter 3 and I want to help you see how this is intimately linked with what we're about to look at today. So last week we looked at 2 Corinthians 3. I called it the basis for boldness. It was the basis for boldness of Paul's ministry in Corinth and it was God's power to work through Paul despite his weakness and unimpressiveness. In fact, if you have just cast your eye up to chapter 3 verse 6, Paul says that God had made him competent as a minister of a new covenant, that is the gospel of Christ, and it far exceeds the glory of the ministry of Moses in the Old Testament, the law. This was the, um, the basis for Paul's boldness. His competence was not in Paul himself, but in God, who made him competent as a minister of the gospel. So Paul was bold in Corinth, even when the relationships were strained. He was willing to speak boldly to them, to challenge them, to encourage them, to correct them. And now he begins this section of the letter with a clear connection to what he's just said. In fact, have a look at chapter 4, verse 1. This is how he starts. Therefore, straight away, he's linking it, isn't he? Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. You see how he's connecting these two? That's the ministry we've got. That's the basis we've got for boldness. And therefore, we don't lose heart. Now, I love this start here because automatically it's an encouragement and a recognition of the fact that there will be times when if you are a Christian who wants to share the gospel, there will be times when that is hard. There will be times when there's the potential for you to lose heart. There'll be times when it's costly, where it's awkward, where it's seemingly non-effective. In that moment, you know that moment of that heart drop where you go, I really desperately want this person to know and it's just, what's going on? In fact, let me give you a quick small example. If you've ever invited a friend to church, you will know this well. You will know and understand the feeling. It's how you suddenly become hypersensitive to everything that happens at church that day. 
You're aware of everything going on to the finest minutia. In fact, you're listening with a super tuned ear to every word uttered because you desperately don't want your friend to be put off Christianity or Jesus. Yes? You, you, are you tracking with me? And then you get to church and the microphone doesn't work. This thing on? What's going on? Yeah. And the singers are off key. And the, the service leader, they go for a joke, but they shank it badly. They think it's a late night comedy sketch and everyone's just, what the heck is going on here? And then the preacher gets up and preaches a howler. <laughs> now, it's possible that none of those things happen, but that you heard it that way. Why? Because you desperately want your friend to come to the same understanding as you about the magnificence of who Jesus is. And you want nothing to stop them from recognising both their desperate need for forgiveness from God and his matchless offer through Christ. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not the only person who's had that. Maybe you're having that experience right now. You want it to go well so that when you perceive that it hasn't, it's easy to lose heart. It's tempting to want to make excuses for the understandable errors that happen in a church week to week. You know, it's a uh, new sound system, or the uh, singer was involved in an industrial accident during the week. That's why they... Or we think that the service leader may have a uh, late-onset case of Tourette's. We're looking into it. Um, yeah. Have you ever felt like that? It's not uncommon you're not alone if you've had that feeling. Now, I want to ask you straight away, what would Paul's response to you be if you've had that, fo- uh, that thought? If you've had that sort of sense of, I'm so nervous, I'm so anxious, I'm so hypersensitive, what would Paul's encouragement be to you in that temptation to lose heart? Just hold that thought for a minute, because I want to tell you about another scenario that you may be familiar with. This scenario, maybe the sound system was fine. The singers, on key. The service leader, winsome, articulate, well-dressed and charming. And the preacher didn't preach a howler, but he preached in line with the authority of the message from God's word. And it was a challenging listen. Sin was preached as sin. Jesus was preached as exclusive, merciful saviour. And therefore, the urgency and the importance of a personal response was unmistakable and unavoidable. And yet your friend is offended, not excited. What's the temptation in that circumstance? Have you ever had that one? Maybe it wasn't that you brought your friend to church. Maybe it was actually you've been having a conversation, sharing the gospel personally with someone, and you've not held back on the tough questions. Rightly, you've been transparent and you've answered and you've, you've thought and talked through this, and it doesn't seem to be landing well. In fact, it's getting awkward. When that message of human sin and the need and offer of salvation in Christ alone is met with either crickets, what I mean is like this blank stares, nothing. Or maybe it's met with complaints, you know, that doesn't sound very loving. Or it's met with criticism, who do you think you are? How can you possibly pretend to know that? Or even contempt, I think that is a disgraceful message. I want nothing to do with that God possibly potentially nothing to do with you either what's the temptation going to face in that circumstance folks you see paul knows that circumstance paul is aware of those kind of moments and he's not just aware of that temptation he's witnessed apparent preachers and gospelers succumb to that temptation did you notice it there in the chapter when it was read have a look at chapter 4 verse 2 as paul contrasts his ministry with those who feel and fall to that temptation have a look at it there chapter 4 verse 2 says this Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. 
We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, did you notice in that first verse the temptation? That temptation in that moment where it doesn't seem to be landing well? It's the temptation to water down the gospel, to dilute it somewhat. Maybe it's an attempt to sort of smooth off the sharp edges, make it more palatable, more appealing to the natural sensibilities of the listener. In fact, Paul will talk about it in Timothy. He will say, uh, he will talk about preachers who come and preach what their itching ears desire to hear. Tickle people's ears, tell them what they want to hear. You ever felt the temptation? When sharing the gospel with friends, when someone hears it and is horrified that you've lumped them in with sinners who need saving? Or insinuated that they aren't good enough for God in their natural state? Or that they don't have the right to determine good and evil by their own standard, but that right belongs exclusively alone to God? And that his word in the Bible is the moral compass by which they need to travel and it will always point them exclusively to forgiveness through Christ? You ever felt the temptation to soften the truth or gloss over the details or relegate core truths to possible interpretations or optional extras? You know, there's quite a bit of debate on this and not everyone agrees. You know what I'm talking about? See, Paul's seen this. He's seen people do it and he calls it underhanded, shameful, deception and distortion of God's word. Wow. Wow. He's not holding back, is he? That is strong language from Paul there. Isn't he? he is not pussyfooting around here. He makes no bones about it. And he is condemning the practice of those who would distort God's word, whether it's by tweaking it to suit the listener's preference or by not making it the truth plain, making it hard to perceive that you can't quite understand. You know, like those optical illusions you see sometimes? And you sort of, hopefully they'll be, yeah, that one. And you sort of go, what the heck is that? I'm getting dizzy looking at it. I can't see the straight line. I can't see the picture in it. It just makes me confused. Paul's condemning the practice of those who would distort God's word by tweaking it to suit listeners' preferences or just not setting it forward plainly so that it's hard to perceive. And the shocking thing to think about here, folks, is that that problem is as real today as it was in Paul's day. I'm, I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this before, but it's worth thinking about. There are people who take the title Christian or even pastor or priest or minister or insert whatever Christian terminology title there and they are kind, well-liked, impressive. They may carry a Bible and even claim to teach from it. They will use lots of Christian-sounding language including Jesus' name and many references to the Holy Spirit. There are people who will say and do all those things and Paul is saying there is a potential that they are deceivers, distorters of God's word, who use underhanded, here the NIV actually renders that word, shameful ways. What he says is that they, they, will, they will stop at nothing is basically what that Greek word means. They will stop at nothing to manipulate and con people with a false gospel. That although they may refer to Jesus a lot, the Jesus they refer to bears no resemblance to the Jesus of the Bible, to the Jesus of history. Have you realised that reality? And my question is, if you have, then could you spot that kind of Christian or preacher or distorted gospel message? Would you recognise it if you heard it so that you could avoid it like the plague and warn others not to get sucked in by it? 
Do you know the difference between fake and fact? It's a very subtle twist. Just a slight change and you've got a completely different thing. Could you spot a fake? I hope so, because in truth you don't have to go find... Uh, go far to find a faux gospel being taught or heralded as the real deal. I mean, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, let's be honest, the whole internet in general has given an automatic platform for all sorts of people who would distort God's word horrendously in an effort to make themselves more relevant, socially acceptable, popular. And it's not just internet wackos that you need to be on guard against because there's plenty of mainline, air quotes, Christian Churches and denominations that are going down that track or have gone down that track. Are you aware of that? Could you spot a phony if you heard one? How could you tell? They're not wearing signs around their neck. In fact, Jesus spoke about false prophets in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 7.15. He talked about, and he called them wolves in sheep's clothing. They're not trying to be seen for what they are. They're trying to disguise themselves. They don't advertise their sharp teeth. Could you spot a faulty gospel? How would you do so? Well, it's like spotting any forgery. Yeah, we always think about money when we think about forgery. How do you spot a fraudulent fraudulent, uh, banknote? You know what you do? You don't study the fakes. Why not? Because the numbers of faulty variation are limitless, don't 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 try to study the fakes. Instead, be keen and able to recognise an imitation because you know the original, genuine article so well that a distortion becomes very quickly apparent. You know what I'm saying? Study the genuine banknote so that you know when you see a distortion. And it's equally true of spotting counterfeit money as it is of spotting counterfeit gospels. Study the authentic gospel well enough to be able to notice distortions in an instant. Actually have your Bible open. Don't let it be collecting dust on your bedside table. Make sure it is well-thumbed. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who says, the man whose Bible is falling apart, his life often isn't. That doesn't mean go kicking your Bible around and try to get brownie point, none of that. But don't be one of those undiscerning Christians who nods and smiles at the first mention of Jesus' name or at the repeated reference to the Spirit in someone's speech. Make sure that the Jesus that they're speaking about is the Jesus of the Bible. Make sure it's the Holy Spirit that they're speaking about who oversaw the the writing of the Bible. Peter says the Holy Spirit carried them along. The Holy Spirit who never speaks to anyone anything that contradicts his word in the Bible. Make sure that's the spirit that's being appealed to. And my question is, are you discerning in that, in that manner? Or do you accept every word or every message from someone who's carrying a Bible who says that they're speaking on behalf of Jesus and treat their opinion as equally valid and correct? Because Paul doesn't. Jesus doesn't. Neither should you. In fact, do you have your Bible open now? (laughs) Are you actually making sure to weigh what I say against what the passage says? I'm 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 saying that I'm teaching from 2 Corinthians 4. Are you checking that? You should. You should be savvy enough to spot distortions. You should be loving, loving enough to correct me by God's word if I speak incorrectly. You should be humble enough to be corrected when you find yourself at odds with the plain teaching and truth of God's word. You see, 
Paul here has a remedy for both spotting phony gospel messages and ensuring he doesn't end up preaching a fluffy fake gospel. Have a look at the end of verse 2 again. Here's the alternative, he says. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You hear what he's doing? You hear Paul's aim? It's to set forth the truth plainly. That means no gimmicks, no bait and switch routines, no hidden fine print. Hence, no long intro to my sermon today. See that? I'm always thinking two moves ahead. There's the illustration. You didn't see it. And in so doing, what's Paul, what's he, he's appealing to two audiences here. He's appealing firstly to the conscience of the hearer. That is, he is making the gospel plain enough for everyone to check and validate against God's word themselves and accept and or deny it. There's the option. And before God, that is, Paul is comfortable in his own conscience before God that he is faithfully teaching and preaching in line with God's revealed truth in his word. I often talk about you live with an audience of one. I still maintain that. I kind of like what Paul's doing here and saying, you know, preach this with an audience of two. Appeal to the person's conscience in the sight of God. Now, I also want to just sort of correct something here or potentially proactively correct something because there's two potential errors to avoid when you read Paul on this space. The first thing I want you to see, and if you've got an outline, they'll be, they're in your outline. Um, the first thing is Paul is not advocating here for a careless dump and run type evangelism strategy or what I like to call blunt force evangelism. <laughs> Setting the truth forth plainly does not mean being cold or harsh, or arrogant, or relationally obtuse when sharing the gospel with people. It's where we get that term Bible basher. Don't be that. Actually, Jake Anderson had a Bible about that thick, and I thought that would do some damage. Should have changed some minds with that, you know. (laughs) Don't do that. Paul of all people, in fact, what does he do? Think about this. He preaches, he teaches, he argues, he persuades, he appeals, he exhorts, he defends, he, de- he denies, he challenges, he corrects people as he shares the great hope of Jesus in his missionary journeys. And he always does that, motivated and marked by a genuine love for God first and a genuine love for people, and his message is always bathed in prayerful dependence on God to do the work of changing. In fact, I'll challenge you, go read Acts. Just read Acts and take note of what it looks like practically for Paul to set forth the truth plainly during his missionary journeys. You will see that it is deliberate. It is intentional, it is pointy, and it's incredibly loving. Actually, it's incredibly personally costly. Could the same be said about your efforts to share the gospel as a follower of Christ who is trying to encourage others to follow Christ, a disciple wanting to make disciples, deliberate, intentional, pointy, loving, bathed in prayer. Notice I'm, I'm sort of taking it as read that you are desiring to do so, by the way. That you are desire, if you're a follower of Christ, I'm taking it as read that you desire to share that with others. And I'm doing that because I can't imagine a single solitary valid excuse that you could use before God to justify knowing the truth about Jesus but never attempting to make him known to others. Can you think of an excuse? <laughs> I can't. So I'm taking it as read that you desire... I'm trying to help you. Don't fall into the trap, though, of loveless, blunt force trauma evangelism. 
That's one error to avoid. What's the other error to avoid? Well, the other error is when reading this, it's to incorrectly assume that if you follow Paul's example here, if you set forth the truth plainly before a person's conscience in the sight of God, that this will automatically make people Christians. Everyone will be dancing like this and doing carpet time for Jesus and you know that sort of stuff. Don't fall into that trap. It's what I want to call mechanistic evangelism or sausage factory evangelism. I just put this into the grinder, turn the handle, this is what pops out. You know what I'm talking about? That's not what it ought to look like either. And no less, it's by God's design that it will not be like that. In fact, check this out in chapter 4, verse 3. What does it say here? Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you hear what Paul is saying here? If he sets the truth of the gospel down plainly and people don't hear or perceive it for the truth that it is, if the truth of the message is hidden or veiled, that's the message, that's the language he uses here, it is only veiled to people who are perishing, that is, unbelievers. And that's so because the God of this age, that's the devil. <laughs> Paul will often use phrases like that, uh, thinking Ephesians, where he'll talk about the. Um, the spirit of the uh, sorry the uh, the spirit at work and the uh, spirit of the air who is now at work and those who are dis- disobedient Ephesians two, or the God of this age. It's an ironic way to speak about the devil because he's not God. The God of this age. The God of this age. The devil has blinded their minds so they cannot understand the truth. Now I reckon I read that first and I go, whoa, that is that is heavy, harsh, concerning stuff. Don't you think? I mean, you read that at first glance. Is it possible to suggest that Paul's saying this with the kind of nonchalant shrug of his shoulders, you know, and preach the gospel. If it's veiled, big whoop, they're perishing. Is that what he's doing? It's how it reads at first, and it's not what he's doing. (laughs) In fact, check the text out, because what Paul is doing here is actually underlining four truths plainly so that the Corinthians and you you and I along with them would have a clearer understanding of the mercy and the magnificence of God's power through the gospel. And here's the four plain truths. The first one we've just read. Truth bomb number one, the present reality of all people, as we've just read in verses three and four, is that they are blinded by sin, the world and the devil, unable to recognize or understand Jesus as God. That sounds hard. But let me say, if you're here today and you're not trusting Jesus as God, this is you. I'm not saying that to be provocatively harsh. I'm saying that's because of what God's word says. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, you will recognize that that was you. Spiritually blind to the reality of Christ. All humanity is included in that category at some point. Very inclusive. Actually, the concerning thing that I find here is almost it seems as if the devil, the God of this age, it seems as though he's got the real power here, that he's able to blind people to keep them in the dark. Is that what Paul's insinuating? Because if we left it there, that's what I'd be thinking, but it's not even close to the truth. No, no, no. The first truth bomb is that all people naturally blinded to the truth of Jesus by sin, the world, and the devil. But because God is in ultimate control, he's prescribed the remedy to this spiritual blindness. Here's truth bomb number two. It's the means of the remedy, and it's the preaching of a message. It is the proclamation of a message. In fact, have a look at it there, chapter 4, verse 5. In response to... People's spiritual blindness. What does Paul and his fellow Christian brothers and sisters do? Verse 5, we preach. This is the 
the means of remedying the spiritual blindness that everyone has by nature. Here's the strategy by which spiritually blind eyes are to be stressed, sorry, are to be addressed, and it's through their ears, as a message is proclaimed. And what's the content of that message to be preached? What's the subject or the core element that of this proclamation? Truth bomb number three, verse five again. For what we preach is not ourselves. That is, it's not a self-help message. This is not a proclamation that the solution for spiritual blindness is either in Paul. He can't flick the spiritual light on for someone. Nor is the solution deep inside the person themselves who is spiritually blind. They can't flick the spiritual lights on either. No, the content, subject and focus of this proclamation is the truth of Jesus. See it there in verse 5? For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Now that is the simplest way to share the gospel. In fact, if you've ever shied away from sharing the gospel because you don't know what to say, then remember that phrase. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the simplest way to express the gospel accurately and it's the foundation on which you can build a whole gospel conversation, a series of gospel conversations as you discuss with somebody all that that phrase means personally for them, corporately for the world. Jesus Christ is Lord. What does that mean? Do you know what that means? What's Lord mean? What do you mean is your, is your Lord? <laughs> do you see how that is just a, that is an expanding suitcase, isn't it? The stacks that you'd be able to build on from that one proclamation. This is the central focus of God's remedy for sin-sick, spiritually blind unbelievers. This is what blind eyes need to hear, the proclamation of Jesus' lordship and all that that entails. And get this, this is the means by which God opens the eyes of spiritually blind people. This is the means by which God flicks on the spiritual lights, so to speak, for people who are otherwise in darkness. It's by hearing the truth about Jesus, and it's nothing short of a miracle. In fact, here's truth bomb number four. Do you realize that when God opens the eyes of an unbeliever to see Jesus for who he is, that is God in the flesh, Savior and King, when that gospel of, of Jesus is preached, and God uses it to flick on the spiritual lights for someone in the dark, that is a miracle on par with the creation of the world. Did you notice that in the text? Verse 6, Paul very deliberately here uses creation imagery. He's sort of hearkening back to the idea of God calling light out of darkness in Genesis 1 verse 3. Let there be light, and there was light. That's what God said. Let there be light, and there was light. Paul's using that type of analogy to describe what happens when God causes unbelievers to suddenly realize who Jesus is. It is a miracle on the scale of creation. In fact, it is a recreation moment. It is a new creation moment. Have a look at it there with me. Chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. What does this mean? If you look at Jesus, look at Jesus, and you recognize God, that is, you realize and acknowledge and trust that he's the only one you need pay attention to, that he actually came to be your savior, that he is your king, who is calling you to obey, and that as you learn to, you learn to do this, as you read his word and trust his spirit's help, 
If that is you, you are a miracle of new creation. That is awesome. That is the exact phraseology Paul will use in the next chapter. The old is gone, the new has come. This is a new creation moment, a recreation moment. How how magnificent is that? If that's you, I've got some implications for you now, but I really want you to actually test that out. If that is you, I want you to consider that question carefully. Do you recognize and treat Jesus as God? Has God opened your eyes to that all-consuming reality? And implications of it? Has he performed that miracle of recreation on your heart and mind? Has he gifted you his spirit to trust Jesus? Ask and answer that question honestly. You're the only person who can do it. If the answer is no, don't switch off. I'll talk to you in a minute. But if the answer is yes, then the implication is as simple as it is profound. It's the title of this sermon Shift Your Perspective. Become what you are already in Christ. I love that phrase. I didn't corner it. I can't remember who I I got it off. The call of the gospel is for Christians to become what you already are in Christ. Shift your perspective. You're a new creation. Of course, I'm picking up on this last section here. I'm not sort of plucking this from the air. I'm picking this up from verses 6 to 18, 16 to 18 rather. And don't worry, I am skipping over verses 7 to 15, but I'll circle back there next week. There's too much in this. But let's have a look. Just read with me for a minute. Verses uh, 16 to 18, how Paul finishes this section. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Did you notice? I want you to notice something there. Did you notice that he finishes this section? He actually circles back to where he started. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Why does he say this? Because the truth of the gospel of Christ is so rich and profound that if you've genuinely, genuinely understood it and you are actually putting your weight on it, it will change your perspective on everything. It will change your perspective on getting older, verse 16. Because in truth, your body will waste away. I've been hobbling around half like a half-shot pocket knife for the last week with a twinged back. I'm getting old. What's going on? Your body will waste away, but by God's grace through his spirit, he is renewing you within from strength to strength, conforming you to Christ's image. That's what Paul said in the last chapter, 4 verse 18, and making you fit not just to endure life now, but making you fit to enjoy life eternal. How awesome is that? Change your perspective on your body and how it's wasting away and inwardly being renewed. And it will change your perspective on hardships and suffering, verse 17. Because though being a follower of Jesus who is keen to share that in a hostile world, though that will be not easy at times, you ought view the struggles as light and momentary. Because by comparison to what is in store for you in Christ, that is eternal glory, that's what they are, light and momentary. Now, if Paul can say that, and we've looked at the way he copped a pizzling from go to woe, absolutely copped it from both barrels from every, which way, every angle. Light and momentary afflictions pale into insignificance by the, the, the weight of glory that is being stored up in Christ. That is amazing. And it ought to change your perspectives on your priorities and your focus, verse 18. Away from what is seen and temporary to what is unseen and eternal. 
Now, how much do we need to be reminded of that in a materialistic world, especially at Christmas? There is so much that is seen. There is so much there, but it's temporary. And there is an ever-present temptation to focus on what we don't have in comparison with the next person, whether it be trinkets and toys and remote control cars or even positive relationships with which to share the celebration of the Christmas season. It's easy to be tempted to be down. I don't have what they, they have. But the gospel insists that you shift your perspective on your priorities to focus on what is unseen and eternal. Because in Christ, if God has opened your eyes to the truth of Jesus, you lack nothing, ever. And even your perceived lack now will not even be, get this, a shadow of a ghost of a memory in heaven. Do you get that? Not even the shadow of a ghost of a memory. That is serious hope and serious comfort. That's something that you should never get sick of praising and thanking God for. In fact, praising and thanking God will never get boring or tiresome. But in heaven, with unfiltered access in a fully renewed creation, it will be more glorious and fulfilling each and every day. Brothers and sisters, reflect on that this week. Praise him and share with others that invitation to praise him. Jesus is Lord. That's magnificent. There's your implication. Change your perspective. Which brings me to the other second implication, application, if you like, from this passage. If you're here today and you haven't yet had that recreation moment that Paul's speaking about here, where your heart and your mind, or you are still what you, an unbeliever. By that, I mean you don't personally, presently, recognize Jesus as Lord. You don't see his glory. Sorry, God's glory displayed in his face. If that's you, I'm really pleased you're here. This is magnificent. I'm glad. Please come back. But it is my prayer, and it is the prayer of every genuine believer here, that this would be the moment of that recreation for you. Or at the very least, that this would be another page in the chapter of recreation that God is writing in your life. Because the implication of this passage is the same for you. It is a clarion call, shift your perspective. Shift your perspective, but now in relation to your present understanding of Jesus. And as we've read today, the remedy for this, it's not found in yourself. It's not located in me. It's only ever in the plain truth of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. My encouragement, my sincere encouragement is that you'll not leave here without talking to a Christian about what that ought mean for you both personally, actually not just to you, but for you personally. That's where God turns the lights on. As Jesus is proclaimed, God flicks the light on to see his glory in Jesus' face for people who are otherwise in the dark. Will you do that? Let me pray and ask God that he'll help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you are so clear and apparent in setting forth the truth, that Paul was clear and apparent in setting it forth plainly for us. As we reflect on our world that is blinded by sin and the devil, unable to perceive your glory in Jesus' face, we ask that by the preaching of your gospel, Jesus is Lord, you would be using that to flick on the light for people who are otherwise in darkness, that you would actually move them not just from darkness to life, but from death to life, and you'd be doing it for their good and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.